Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. As you're turning there, I want to ask you kind of a personal shopping question. Have you ever gone to the grocery store and went to pick up something and that ends up being two other or three other or four other somethings and you wish that you had picked up one of those little, little uh, um, uh, what do you call them, baskets that you could put things in? Or have you ever picked up one of those baskets to pick up a few things and then you really wish you had gotten a cart, right? I just want to confess to you that I feel that way every week in Ephesians. I I keep thinking that we're able to make more traction and we're, we're not going to be able to finish the study of the first six verses this morning as I thought we would, but I can assure you that there's way more here than first meets the eye. When, it, when we're uh, talking about preaching and preaching class with the seminary students, I often say it's like you're going, you study all week and it's like you're going to go to Disneyland on Sunday. The problem is you only have a five-passenger car, and all week you collect about 15 kids, and they can't all come. So I understand what it's like to edit, but this is such rich, wonderful um, realities that we're studying in the passage before us. I remember reading in one commentary, and I, I won't tell you which one it is, that Basically, the author was saying that you kind of endure the first three, three chapters so that you can get to chapters four, five, and six. I'm just finding that not to be true. I am seeing such wealth of the truth of God in these passages, uh, passages and I trust that you are as well. Today, we're going to be looking at the revelation of God's mystery. That's an important title and I trust you'll understand a little bit more why it is phrased the way it is as we progress. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation... There was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The joy of uh, watching cartoons as a kid is far different today than it was when I grew up, as it was when many of you grew up. Today, you can find just about any cartoon or any animated show that you desire online at any time at watch at your leisure. There's even a network completely devoted to cartoons. Are you ready for this? Called the Cartoon Network. That's creative. But for some of us who are a little older, we remember a time, a long time ago, when watching cartoons as a kid was what much more of a rare privilege. When I was a kid, for example, cartoons were only shown on Saturday mornings for a few hours. 
on three different networks, and you had to decide which you wanted to watch. That made Saturday mornings pretty special. One of my favorite cartoons growing up was about a group of teenage friends who traveled around in a bright green van along with a Great Dane dog named Scooby-Doo. Now, here's what you need to know about the old Scooby-Doo. It was <laughs> the exact same plot every single week without, without any, any variance. Now, why the trip down memory lane? Well, my first memory of the idea of a mystery goes back to Scooby-Doo. In fact, the name of their green van was the, anyone remember? You're scaring me. <laughs> the mystery machine, right? Not so subtle, right? So you'll forgive me when I tell you that when I first read about mystery in Paul's writings many years ago, led me to the idea of a puzzle to be solved, a problem to be figured out. However, a puzzle being solved cannot be freighted into what Paul is communicating about the idea of a mystery. That's not what Paul is describing. As we walk through our passage this morning and next week, I hope you're going to come away with a better understanding of what a biblical mystery is and what it's not, and not bring your expect expectations and experience with Agatha Christie and Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and Scooby-Doo along with you. We meet Paul's articulation of mystery as he explains the coming of the New Testament revelation of God. In fact, the, the key to this whole passage is really in the first phrase of verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. This is talking about new revelation in contrast to the old revelation, which was the Old Testament, the Older Testament. This is talking about the canon and the coming of the New Testament and New Testament revelation. As we walk through this, I think you'll be able to discover with me two New Testament revelations about God's grace, because it's really the focus of what Paul's doing in these first six verses. Two New Testament revelations, and by that, I mean these are revelations about God and His grace that were previously unknown in the Old Testament. That's why he'll tell us this was not known in previous generations, and we'll get to that next week. Two New Testament revelations about God's grace. In other words, these are new, new insights from God's Spirit that were not known until the writing of the New Testament, the apostles and the prophets specifically. The first New Testament revelation about God's grace is in verses 1 and 2. God's grace is a shared stewardship. You didn't see this in the Old Testament, but it comes out bright and shiny and new in the new. God's grace is a shared stewardship. Last week, we looked at just verse 1. We, we didn't get past verse 1. And 
we need to incorporate that into Paul's complete thought in verses 1 and 2 this morning. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, and I, I told you there are liberal scholars who say Paul didn't write Ephesians, which means you have to disbelieve what Ephesians says to understand what Ephesians means. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The text says Paul wrote Ephesians. I'll take it at face value. And then he describes himself, as we looked for our entire time last week, as the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. An interesting designation. The driving theological premise of this verse is that Paul sees his incarceration in Rome from a theological perspective. He sees through what's happening in his circumstances to God who's behind them. And we know that that's really the key to peace in this world. That's the key to contentment. That's the key to perspective. He doesn't describe himself, oddly enough, as a prisoner of Nero, though he was, or a prisoner of Rome or in Rome, which he was. He doesn't describe himself as being at sword point, which he was. He says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. We spent our time, a considerable amount of time, dissecting that last week. But for today, I want to notice that last phrase in verse 1. I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. One of the things that you need to learn as, as you study the Bible, that we, we grow in our understanding from Genesis to Revelation, is that sometimes there are, are big deals made in the Scriptures that we just kind of brush over as not that big a deal, but, but it, would, it would serve us to stop and see why is this a big deal that he's a prisoner in Rome for the sake of you Gentiles? First of all, we know that he's writing to a group of Gentiles in Ephesus or in Asia Minor. That's important to tell us about the audience. But what was it about the Gentiles and his ministry to them that was so important? This should encourage you because most of us sitting in this American church are Gentiles. If you have Jewish blood, Praise God, you can understand this from a different perspective. But most of us are Gentiles. We didn't grow up as Jews with synagogue or temple worship or the sacrificial system as they did or the oracles of God, the, the scriptures, the, the Old Testament being rolled out as scrolls and read every week on Saturdays and the Sabbath. Paul was called by God as a Jew as what he calls himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was an all-star Jew. To be a missionary to non-Jews, to Gentiles. Don't yawn at that in your heart. This is a big deal. He was a missionary to the Gentiles, and being a missionary to the Gentiles was massively important to him. It is on most pages of the New Testament in Paul's writings where he makes allusion to this. Let me give you a brief tour. Listen very briefly. Acts chapter 9. Paul goes to see Ananias after his conversion. And the Lord says to Ananias this. Go for he, Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine. This was, by the way, after Ananias said, I'm a Christian and you want me to go see Paul as a Christian? He kills Christians. He says, no, no, go he is a chosen instrument of mine, God said, to bear my name 
before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And Paul would do that. You read the book of Acts, you read his epistles. That's exactly what he did. But the accent on your, your missionaries to the Gentiles is unmistakable. Acts chapter 22, Paul's reflecting on that day on the road to Damascus when he was converted. And he says, God said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul is giving his testimony to King Agrippa in Acts 26. And he says, he was rescued from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles whom I am sending you, this is God telling him this, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Paul was told, go tell Gentiles they can be forgiven by the Jewish Messiah who is now their Savior. Galatians 1. Paul says, I'm writing to reveal his son in me so that I may preach him among the Gentiles. Galatians 2.7. Seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, the Jews. For he who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectively, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. So he's saying Peter was given a call to go to the Jews, me to the Gentiles. He actually says he experiences fellowship down in verse 9 so that he would go to the Gentiles and they be forgiven of their sins. Romans 1.5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, speaking of himself as a companion's, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Romans 11.3, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much as then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles. 1 Timothy 2.7, for this, and remember, Paul's writing to Timothy who's pastoring at Ephesus. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, that's a small sampling. Please know this. If God in the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, makes such a big deal of him being a minister to the Gentiles, we should understand why that's such a big deal. And we do in verse 2 of chapter 3 in Ephesians. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. If indeed you, Ephesians, have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, for you Gentiles. It's amazing that this was Paul's reputation. Remember, he loved to take the gospel to the Jews. God told him in Acts chapter 9 in his conversion that he would be preaching to kings and to Jews, and he loved going to the Jews. We've said over and over, in the book of Acts, everywhere he goes, in every city, he goes straight to the synagogue. And not one time does that ever work out so well. They want to kill him. They beat him up. Derby and Lister, they drag him out of the synagogue, take him outside to a ditch, 
and beat him so bad they thought he was dead and walked away. The Ephesians had no doubt heard of Paul's life, his ministry, his reputation. And now he says, not only was this different than my expectation to be called as a missionary to the Gentiles, that calling has landed me in prison. Now, now just think of this, about this. If you, if you went into being a missionary to a certain group of people begrudgingly, and then you got thrown in prison by those people, would that possibly cause you some heartburn and some consternation and maybe a little bitterness? Not Paul. He says, this is for your sake. This is okay. His ministry perspective is profound. He did not struggle against this calling. In fact, he embraced it as a precious stewardship to be cared for. He calls it, look at verse two, the stewardship of God's grace. He was a caretaker and a tender of God's grace. To get a running start on this, we got to go back. Go back to chapter one, and let's see what Paul says about God's grace and his stewardship of that. He starts out, Paul, chapter one, verse one, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so easy to just skip a rock across that water and not stop to see how amazing it is. He says, I want God's grace to be extended to you. Why? He was a steward of God's grace, a caretaker of it. And we say grace and peace come in tandem. Grace is everything we need, undeserved favor from God. Peace is everything we want, a cessation from frustration and trouble. So in God, God gave him a stewardship to give to the readers, to the hearers of his preaching, everything they wanted and everything they needed. Sufficiency. He goes on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind disposition, intention of his will. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. I just fear in my own heart that sometimes theological concepts in terms like grace, peace, mercy can be so commonplace in our minds and hearts that they, they lose their traction. They lose their, the drama of their definitions. He gave us the wonderful doctrine of election and predestination so we would praise the magnificent glory of his grace. He goes on, which he freely bestowed in him. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he, this is one of our favorite words in Ephesians. 
He lathered on us. He lavished on us. He overflowed onto us. He didn't give us a little grace. Being rich in grace, he lavished it on us. And because of that, Paul saw his entire ministry as holding God's grace and telling people about it. Chapter 2, verse 4. After telling us you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you, you, you walked according to the uh, godless worldview, you walked according to the satanic influence and worldview, you walked according to your own desires that came from out, inside you out and expressed outward in sinfulness. You were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins. But, but, verse 4, God, and then he goes to his character, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Wow, how, wow, and, uh, uh, why, how, w where did you do this? When did this happen? By grace, you have been saved. Raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, listen, listen, so that in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the undeserved gift of God. It's not a result of works. So no one could ever brag or boast. Paul is obsessed with grace. And we sing about it. And we read about it. And we talk about it with such common disinterest. Grace is a gift. Paul says it's also a stewardship. Something granted to a believer, not just him, but every believer, that we are to treat as precious. We are dispensers of God's grace. And he is overwhelmed that he's dispensing God's grace to a group of people that the Jews hated, the Gentiles. Paul's faithfulness to his stewardship landed him in prison where he had time to pray, as we'll find out later in this chapter, time to write, that's why we have Ephesians, Time to evangelize the, the guards and the people who came to see him. He didn't see his negative circumstances, listen, as bad because he saw them as ordained by God. And if they were ordained by God and God was sovereign, there was no such thing to Paul as a bad circumstance. Only God's opportunities. We looked at this last week. If we can change our perspective to that, we will change from complaining to ministering. As we noted last week, there's a very sweet lesson here. We should, I gotta be careful. Listen carefully. We should be very, very careful trying to get out of situations and difficulties that God has put us into for his power and his purposes. 
I think sometimes we say, Lord, deliver me from this. And if God were to speak to us, he might say, but, but, but I put you there for your good and my glory. That doesn't mean we pray, don't pray for a cessation of our difficulties. I do. But it means in the midst of them, we think like Paul, that we are not victims of circumstance, but prisoners of the Lord. What a difference. God's grace is a stewardship. You have it. You own it. What are you doing with it? Secondly, God's grace is a revealed mystery. God's grace in the gospel in the New Testament is a revealed mystery. It's another New Testament revelation about God's grace. Now, this section, let me, let me give you a little head start, is going to have four subsections, and we're only going to get through the first two today. So just put a comma at the end of that, and we'll come back and pick up the rest next week. But there's just way too much here to digest. So let's break this down. First of all, we see that God's mystery is disclosed by New Testament revelation. Now, you may be looking at this and say, where did you get New Testament revelation? Where's the New Testament in, in, this, in this passage? It's in verse 3. That by revelation, there was made known to me. It's a passive verb. Someone revealed something to Paul. Who was that? It was God. It was made to him. What was specifically revealed to him? The mystery. The mystery. As I wrote in brief. Again, we can mistake Paul's meaning here if we import, if we freight into our understanding of mystery into Paul's understanding of mystery in this passage. This is not a parallel to Sherlock Holmes or Nancy Drew, Agatha Christie, Hardy Boy, Scooby-Doo. This is not how you figure it out. It's not a Rubik's Cube that you got to sort out in the right layers to get aligned. Paul's mystery and his use of the word mystery is something completely different. By the way, he uses the word mystery four times in Ephesians. First, he refers to this mystery in chapter 1, verse 9. Maybe you can look over there. He made known to us the mystery and mysterion of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to a dispensation, an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. Bookmark that in your mind. Then he comes back to the idea of mystery in chapter 5, verse 32. Completely different. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What is he talking about there? He talks about the fact that marriage was given to illustrate the gospel, and the gospel was given to illustrate and inform marriage. And he says, this is, mystery is great. And he talks about marriage and a husband lovingly leading his wife and a wife joyfully following the leadership and submitting to her husband and how that works so preciously when they're both walking in the spirit and fulfilling their obligations to the Lord. He says, this mystery is great. You say, what is it a mystery? Well, it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but it is in the New. You say, what was it? That marriage illustrates the gospel and the gospel illustrates marriage. And if you peek at Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2, you can just listen to me on this. You get another angle at his use of the meaning of the word mystery. Colossians 2 verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. 
that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, that unity is important, related to the mystery, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, all the treasures of knowledge. So if you put those together outside of the passage in Ephesians 3 we're looking at, you find that mystery means God's summing up of all things now and in the future in Christ. You also learn that God's use of marriage and the gospel to illustrate one another are a mystery. And God's son himself, Jesus Christ, is called a mysterion, a mystery. So let's break that down a little bit more. What, what, what is this mystery? He adds a nuance here in chapter 3 by telling us that God's mystery is important to our understanding of ecclesiology, of the doctrine of the church. The Greek word from which we get our word mystery is mysterion in the Greek, refers to something that's only known by the initiated, to the privileged. It is not like our understanding of a mystery that's something difficult to work out, figure out, it's a puzzle to be solved. Paul uses mysterion here to describe, very important, something that was unknown before the coming of Christ, but now is fully revealed in the New Testament. Let me say that again. Paul's use of mystery, his mystery describes something that was unknown before Christ, before the coming of Christ, but now is fully revealed by New Testament revelation. And we'll find out next week that was given through the apostles and the prophets. Just bookmark that in your mind till next week. Paul's talking about something here that could not be figured out by human intuition, by human intelligence, by cleverness. This kind of mystery is not a mystery novel. This kind of mystery is something only God reveals. Only God reveals. You can't figure this out with your own in intuition. You can't figure this out even from the Old Testament. And this is specifically describing the revelation that came after the Old Testament, which would be recorded in the New, hence the phrase, that by revelation there was made known to me this mystery, the mystery. So what is this mystery specifically here in chapter 3? <clears throat> well, if you read all the way through 6, you know exactly what it is, but let me kind of collate some things for you. Back in Ephesians 2.12, he says, Remember, speaking to the Gentiles, that you were formerly... We formerly were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You as Gentiles were not Jews, so you were not privileged to get to know God. And the idea of Jewish evangelism, this is important, was to talk to the Gentiles about becoming Jewish. That was proselytizing. That's what they did. They proselyted Gentiles to become Jewish. Then they were finished. They reached the finish line. Compare that, though, to Ephesians 3.6. Just look down the passage. 
speaking of the mystery, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. With who? With the Jews. Fellow members of the body. With who? With who? The Jews. Fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus. Here it is. The Jews who knew the gospel and believed it and the Gentiles who knew the gospel and believed it, they became something new, a new humanity, a new body, he says, a new person. So don't miss this. Paul grew up in a system where Jews tried to convert Gentiles to being Jewish. Now, God made him a missionary to the Gentiles where he was no longer representing Judaism, but Christianity. The mystery here in chapter 3 is that there's no longer Jew and no longer Gentile, but in the church there's Christian. Gentile believers in the gospel are equal with Jewish Christians in the church, vice versa. And the mystery, as we will see outlined next week in verse 6, is very clear. Gentiles will be made partakers and fellows and Brothers and sisters with Gentile believers in God's new people, the church. So back up just a little bit. This is important because Paul says this is a mystery. Being a steward of grace means this grace involves explaining to you things that you didn't know before from the Old Testament. This is new revelation. Andy Nasali is super helpful on how the idea of the mystery functions to help us understand, he quote, how the Bible hangs together, end quote. There are two ways the New Testament and the Old Testament cohere. Again, this is from Andy Nasali's How to Understand and Apply the New Testament. He says, first, there's promise and fulfillment. In the Old Testament, he writes, God promises glorious experiences for his people, and Paul explains that many of those are now fulfilled. Pretty simple. Promise, fulfillment. But there's another way that the New Testament connects to the Old, and it's in its uniqueness. There's promise and fulfillment, but there's also hide and reveal. This is his second point. He says, quote, Paul reveals that several elements in the gospel, and even in the gospel itself, even the gospel itself, were hidden in the past and have only been revealed with the coming of Christ. Those glorious truths were hidden in the Old Testament and are only now revealed. Paul calls calls those truths hidden truths. He calls them a mystery in verse 6, end quote. So the key for us is to take away from verse 3 that this is new revelation that comprises the new covenant, the New Testament. And it was given to us, as we'll see next week, through the apostles and through the prophets. Now, I know, I, I, know, I know how you're thinking probably. I know how you're feeling. You're like, wow, that's great. Maybe this will come handy in the future if I ever play Bible Trivial Pursuit. What does this have to do with with me and with us. It has a lot. It's so valuable. We've been saying for weeks, I think I've said it in four different sermons, this is number five. The Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. They disliked each other's cultures. They disliked each other's 
backgrounds. They had different diets. They couldn't even share a meal together. Different calendars, holidays, different weekends, different ways they dressed, different languages, different places of worship, different ways their children played, different neighborhoods, different places they could eat shop. There was kosher and non-kosher. There was different greetings, different goodbyes. They were different. They were <laughs> incompatible in every possible way. And also the Gentiles held a strong iron grip on the Jews. Eight years from the writing of Ephesians, Jerusalem would be destroyed and Jews would be taken prisoner to Rome in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And yet, these two groups Paul writes to, and he says, Christ is creating a new humanity, no longer Jewish and no longer Gentile, no longer circumcised, no longer uncircumcised, but Christian, common in faith in the gospel. How in the world did this come about? Well, we discussed this a little bit in chapter 2. The principle applies to us here at many levels that it comes about when we prize unity with other believers ahead of our own issues, opinions. There should be nothing in our cultural backgrounds or extra-biblical opinions and loyalties that should threaten our unity in the church. John 13, Jesus said, they will know, the world will know that you love me when you love each other. And Satan has tempted us, especially recently, to find such divisions in our opinions about masks and vaccinations and ideas about how we school our children and judgments about birth control and participation in liberties and on and on and on. And we find reasons to disagree with people in the church more than we find reasons to praise the glory of His grace. That doesn't mean we don't bring those issues to bear under the authority and instruction of Scripture it does mean that we have a higher loyalty to the Lord himself with our brothers and sisters than we do to our nuanced convictions that can divide us. The gospel, frankly, should evaporate those distinctions in view of the greatness of our common salvation in Christ. Very quickly at the end of verse 3, he says, of which I wrote to you briefly. Um, what, what is that about? A lot of speculation. Did he write another letter? And is this referencing uh, uh, Colossians or Galatians letter? I think he's just said, I talked about this earlier in the, in the letter in chapter two. I, I just briefly mentioned it a few verses ago. And now he's going to explain it more. And the key here is to note that Paul was given his understanding about God's mystery through direct revelation or the New Testament as we know it was not in the Old Testament, new information that God disclosed to the apostles and prophets here in the New Testament times. And more on that in verse 5. Very briefly, let's talk a second subpoint here. God's mystery is established, believed, received by New Testament revelation. By referring to this, that God revealed these things to him in a mystery... By referring to this, when you read this book of Ephesians, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. I know what I'm talking about because God told me. 
Now here's the question. Why can't anybody say that today? God told me so, whatever. Or maybe the opposite. Any of you old enough to remember Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. Why can't you just say, God told me? And this is not the time for this moment, uh, for this uh, comment, but it, there's a sermon in my future. This is one of those things you have a, have a great sermon in mind. I just need to find the right texts. Because people often say that they don't say God told me, but they will say this. Well, I know this is what God wants me to do because I prayed about it. Oh, that settles it. That's a game changer, right? So you talk to God, which made you know what God would say to you. How's that work out in your parenting? Anyway, we'll save that for another time. The, the, the point is, he's saying that God told me this. Why could he say that? Because he was an apostle and there were prophets. So when we get to verse 5 next week, we're going to take a little bit of an excursus to talk about why we at Mission Road Bible Church are cessationists. Why the prophets have gone away and the apostles have gone away and revelatory gifts have gone away because the revelation is done. Our Bible is complete. Just hold that till next week. Once again, he goes back to this mystery in verse 4. It was hidden in God down in verse 9, has been hidden in God who created all things. This mystery cannot be understood by human ingenuity or study. It's not a solvable puzzle. It's a revealed secret to be understood by all believers because of divine New Testament revelation. So Paul calls the readers, Paul calls us to see that his reference to God's mystery should be understood as new revelation recorded in what he's writing, which is the New Testament. This should help us appreciate, cherish, love our New Testaments, but please don't ever let it diminish or devalue the Old Testament. How did God inspire the New Testament? Apostles and prophets. He says so in verse 5. Not previous generations, but New Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. And how did he use these apostles and prophets? Next week, we'll talk about that. We'll take a deeper dive into the rest of this passage to answer those questions. More specifically, I want to show you how Paul's words in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 convince me that the miraculous gifts have ceased and why we are cessationists. It's an awkward place to put a comma, but we don't have time to finish the next few verses. But let me just ask you two simple questions, can I? God's grace, giving us what we don't deserve, is the essence of Paul's stewardship, which means it's the essence of the gospel. Have you experienced God's grace? Are you, are you a believer? Do you believe the good news that Jesus is the only way to heaven do you believe that he would pay for your sins on the cross? Do you believe that he has given a free offer for anyone who believes in the good news that he, he's the Savior, the crucified, resurrected Savior? He would give them, he would give you new life and bring you into his new humanity. 
Also, I think you need to ask yourself as a Christian, do you experience the stewardship of grace? Do you feel the stewardship of God's grace? Do you pursue it and protect it and promote it? Do you do that in our body here at Mission Road? We didn't finish the passage. I just want you to know that, folks, our Messiah is the Jewish Messiah. Our Savior is the Jewish Savior. We should never forget those roots, but we should never find division with our Jewish brothers and sisters because of those roots. Learn to love God's grace, which he lavishes on believers.